0: רגע, לפני שמתחילים. אם אתם יכולים, בבקשה, דרגו אותנו באפליקציות הפודקסטים שלכם. זה מאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפליץ את הבשורה של הערוץ ליותר אנשים. ממש תודה רבה לכם. פתיח, הפודקאסט של דוקטור יוזביץ'. My guest today predicted the rise of Hamas. He is the author of many, many books, and maybe he prevented a war between the United States and Iran. And my guest today is Bruce Bueno de Mesquita, the great political scientist. Hi, and welcome to my show. My name is Roy Ozevich, and in this show, I'm going to discuss and converse with the most interesting and influential people from all around the world to discuss science, political science, artificial intelligence, religion, and even more. If this is your first time here, please consider subscribing, hit the bell button, and be part of this great community. And my guest today, again, is Professor Bueno de Mesquita, which is a great name. The biggest name in political science is a political scientist, professor at New York University, senior fellow at Stanford University, Hoover Institute, institution, which is the good guys, and he has written many, many books, including uh, the dictator's handbook, like a 20th century version of Machiavelli, the Prince, Spoils of Water, and most recently, the invention of power. Popes, kings, and the Beast of the West. Bruce, thank you so much for coming. How are you today?
1: I'm very well, thank you, and I appreciate your having me. You've had some fantastic guests. Sorry that you have to reach down to my level, but I'm I'm happy to be here.
0: <laughs> okay, but again, this is the biggest name in political science. This is good. So let's start with the beginning. It, it it's not a common American name, Bruce Bueno de Mesquita. What? What is the origin of this very interesting name? Uh, So during the, um, this
1: is going to be a longer answer, I'm sure that you want, but during the Spanish Inquisition, uh, my family was uh, living in Cordoba in Spain. uh, And as best as we can tell, there's a certain amount of speculation here. Part of the family were the kohanim who were running the uh, synagogue that is two or three blocks away from the uh, mosque in Cordoba. Even today, uh, the dome of the mosque where the Imam calls the faithful to prayer is called the Bueno de Mesquita. So as best as we can piece together, uh, the, the Muslim community, the Imam in particular, try to figure out what to call my ancestors to relate them, what they did to what he did and came up with Bueno de Mesquita.
0: Okay um, this is a great story. So uh, are you Jewish? Yes oh, this is great. okay. nobody's perfect. Okay. <laughs> so okay there are so much to discuss with you. If you write Bruce Bueno de Mesquita on YouTube, you will find advices on how to buy a, how to buy a car? <laughs> Which is a great advice, and you will buy. And you will find many, many things. So, with your permission, let's start with the dictator's handbook, which it seems like a a modern version of Machiavelli's *The Prince*. Would you uh, Would you agree with this uh, thing?
1: Uh, Yeah. So, to 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 a significant degree, I would agree. There are places where I would would disagree with it. Machiavelli in The Prince was concerned, as the title says, with how a prince should govern. Uh, He was trying to get a job. He he didn't get the job. Uh, The Dictator's Handbook is uh, an explanation uh, of how any sort of ruler needs to govern in order to remain in power. So not limited to a prince, uh, but to anybody... uh, democracy, autocracy, monarchy, military junta, makes no difference uh, who wants to govern. Uh, And whereas um, Machiavelli's analysis was empirically driven, he he was a good observer, uh, the Dictator's Handbook, um, I should mention my co-author Alastair Smith, um, the Dictator's Handbook is based on game theory modeling uh, and then empirical analysis of the game theoretic thinking.
0: Okay, but I would say that, you know, some aspect of game theory also exists in The Prince, although not explicit because okay. he didn't know about game theory. But, you know, if you, that you need to get rid of the someone who got you into the power position is, I think, part of what we now consider game theory. Now, the, uh, the second title of, of your book is why bad behavior is almost always good politics, which, okay, which, you know, leads us to the connection or the disconnection between moral or morality and politics. And on its face, it seems that it's not that they're independent. They are the extreme opposites. Would you agree?
1: Uh, I do agree. And I should emphasize at this point uh, because that's a very important observation, uh, that the dictator's handbook is uh, designed to be a, I'm going to use it in a technical sense, the a positive book, not a normative book. Oh, this uh, is a, we, we are a not recommending how people should govern. We are trying to explain why people do what they
0: do. Okay. Because, you know, in English, I think that Big Nick or Old Nick is a, nick, is a nickname for the devil because of Machiavelli. So the prince got very bad reputation throughout history. And again, it was correct in the, in, in, in the sense that it truly describes what a prince should do to remain power. Now, a, a, a major pillar in your book, in your theory, is the concept of keys, okay? So the, that, that the king, that the ruler, need to spread the keys, not to spread the keys too much. So could you please elaborate on what do you mean when you say keys? Uh,
1: So we don't actually use the term keys. Um, It's used very effectively in uh, an animated uh, video uh, summary of the theory, uh, rules for rulers. Uh, what, What we mean is Uh, There are basic rules that people who govern have to follow if they want to stay in power. Um, And uh, those rules involve some very simple principles. You want to depend on as few people as you possibly can to keep you in power. And to make those people stay loyal to you, um, they are the the keys, uh, you, you need to pay them handsomely. Uh, they, they need to believe that they cannot, they cannot do better backing somebody else. You want to pick those essential people from as big a pool of possible replacements as possible so that they each know that if they don't do exactly what you want, you can get somebody else who will get the nice benefits of being your backer. Uh, and and they can be tossed aside. So they know there's a risk that they can be thrown out. Uh, You wanna tax as much as possible, the people who support you don't need to keep you impossible as much as possible, meaning up to the limit just before they would revolt because it becomes worthwhile to revolt. And you don't want to spend the money that you need to keep the keys loyal, Uh, instead, on the general public. You might be civic-minded with the money that's left over, your discretionary pot. You might want to steal it, or you might want to spend it on good public policy, and you might have good ideas about what that is. You might have bad ideas. But the essence is you have to keep the keys loyal, and to keep the keys loyal, you have to compensate them well. So when it's a very small group of people, the efficient way to govern is is to be corrupt. It's to bribe them, basically. And when the group gets to be much larger, it's just too expensive to bribe a lot of people. So instead, you have to produce effective public policy, and that makes it essentially a race with competitors over ideas, and so you wind up losing power quickly.
0: So again, it's very cynical. you know. When in, So even, even a benevolent king cannot not... No, no, bride the key, the loyalty. And again, there is this tension between, I will give money to the people, but again, I need to give money to loyalty. And this happens again and again, even in democracies. And you give the the examples, I think, that in farming, subside, okay? In farming, subside, I basically bride, you know, like groups of powers that I wouldn't have uh, bride them in, in a country where farming or the group of farmers are not strong enough is not strong enough. So again, it happens all the time. Would you agree?
1: It happens everywhere throughout history and not just in government, in any organization. Every organization has what we call a selectorate, the pool of people who have a say in picking leaders and what you're calling the keys, the winning coalition, the people essential to keep you in power, every organization. Um, And so uh, you put it perfectly, even the most benevolently inclined king has nevertheless to first make sure that the keys, the winning coalition, are kept happy, meaning they are loyal. And the way to do that is, when it's a small group is, is, is to govern inefficiently from the perspective of the people, deprive them of lots of good policies and instead have a corrupt society, even though you want to do the right thing. If you do the right thing, a rival who is prepared to make the, the keys better off will overthrow you. So you have no choice. So it is very cynical,
0: depressing. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but. Again, it seems that there is a profound difference between North Korea and the United States because it's not like you know okay now now I buy lot, 2,000 keys and in the United States I, I buy more. It seems and I think that you put it also that since we in the United States count our economy on people's mind on what they produce, with their creativity, with the genius, there is a profound difference, okay? It's not that, okay, so democracy is is a a slightly better version of dictatorship. Since there are many, many people that you need to please, and since I can't dig the, and since I'm not counting on oil and gold, where I can put, even if the people are starving, I need to make more people happy. Would you agree, or you said no? It's 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 not a it's not a profound difference. Uh, so um,
1: it's not a a profound difference in motivations. It is a profound difference in outcomes. Um, a a democratic leader, leader who depends on millions of people to stay in power, uh, who tries to be more corrupt then the structure will permit, uh, is thrown out. Um, and likewise, a democratic leader who isn't corrupt, but just doesn't have very successful policy ideas, is thrown out. So if we if we look at uh, the United States uh, since the end of World War II, and we look at, uh, or since the, since the Korean War, and we look at North Korea since the Korean War, uh, North Korea has only had three leaders. Uh, The system works, when you you depend on very few people, the system works really well for the leader and for the very few who are the keys, and it works terribly for everybody else. When the winning coalition is really large, the system doesn't work great for the leader. The leaders don't do fabulously, Uh, Democratic leaders, for example, on average are paid much less than autocrats. uh, And while they may get good book contracts after, they they don't get to steal billions of dollars. Um, And the system works, the democratic system works really well for the average person. So there is a profound difference in outcomes. There's not a profound difference in the logic and conceptualization. The leaders are all trying to stay in power. It's just that they're more constrained in a democracy. It's harder.
0: You said, I think, that there are two extremes. If this is a very well-established democracy, it will be very strong, very stable. If this is a very stable dictatorship, it will be also very stable, but all the places in between are much less stable. But Nassim Nikola Taleb, I think, like twenty, I don't know, like 15 years ago, said that Libya... Is much less stable than Italy. Although Libya is a very strong ruler, uh, Gaddafi, and is heavily dependent on gold, and Italy has, you know, crisis each and every, uh, every second day. Italy, in the context of like the, uh, the system, will be more stable. And I think how to coexist what Nassim Talib said. If what you, with what you said, because I thought that Libya was again, a very strong dictatorship, but maybe even a strong dictatorship is less stable than a very strong democracy or even not so strong democracy. What's your so, thoughts
1: So there are, first of all, we have to distinguish what we mean by stability. In a place like uh, Muammar Gaddafi's Libya, uh, leadership was very stable. The political system was not, the country may not have been, but the leadership was, he was in power a very long time and he made very serious errors. Uh, Had he not made those errors, he'd be alive and still a dictator today in my view. Uh, Italy, um, has had very unstable liter- uh, leadership, but stable institutions. So these they're, they're very different things. Leaders care about the stability of leadership. They don't really care about the stability of institutions. Uh, we, the people, are better off when the institutions are stable. So there's a, there are important differences in the stability of dictatorship and, and democracy. Um, Both, if you are really a small coalition, really a a big coalition, really democratic, really autocratic, uh, you are pretty much immune from revolution. If you are really democratic, you are also pretty much immune from a successful coup d'etat. But if you are a really dictatorial regime, uh, you have good methods available to prevent, to avoid coup d'etat, but you're not immune from it. So the instability in in extreme dictatorships, if there is to be instability, it, it comes from within the inner circle. Um, the, the, I, I don't know if you want me to get a little technical, uh, the explanation of why democracy and why, uh, extreme autocracy or more stable is is pretty straightforward. So if you look at at my fingers and the smallest winning coalition is over here and the biggest is vertically, uh, I'm sorry, horizontally over here. And this is how well off each member of the coalition is. When the coalition is really, really small, the individual members are getting lots of benefits. Two things happen as the coalition is enlarged. They, the share of the, the, the quantity of private benefits is shrinking to the individual because yeah. that's to be shared among more people. So their welfare is dropping. But to stay in power, the leader has to spend more of the revenue to keep the, the keys, the coalition loyal. There's less money left over for the incumbent. So it, the welfare is dropping, but eventually that expanded. Pi of money means the function turns up. And once it turns up, it keeps going up as the coalition gets bigger. There is a critical dividing line, a cut point. This welfare level, which is quite high, is not as high as the welfare if the coalition is bigger than at this point. Once it passes here, the welfare keeps going up. So In the bowl that is formed between here and where my finger reaches over in here, there are coups and there are revolutions. But once you pass this point, you can't make enough people better off who have either a revolt or a coup. Down here, for technical, complicated reasons, you can't This is what involved. we
0: call Nash equ- equilibrium, not. Th- so this this this
1: is a uh, a dynamic uh version of a Nash equilibrium. It, uh, yes. Okay. It's, now it's a perfect Bayesian equilibrium, but look yeah, okay. yes. at
0: <laughs> Okay. Now I would say that the founding father of uh, you know is the, the, the guys who made the constitution were heavily uh, interested in the stability of the system and this is why we have checks and balances okay would you say that you know checks and balances, and, and the and the essence of the american con- constitution is mostly about the stability of the system uh yes um the 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 constitutional structure
1: uh seems to me uh, i'm i'm not a constitutional expert but seems to me to have been uh designed, certainly the Federalist Papers indicate that it was designed with the idea that while there would be factions and there would be lots of fighting among leaders and so forth, that the structure should be stable. Uh, and you know that's one of the reasons, for example, uh, that the constitution makes it very difficult to amend the constitution. So the United States has had very few amendments over its roughly 240 years, uh, Preserving the, the structure. But of course, that, that's, that structure also results in high turnover in, in leaders. So, uh, you know, the North Korean system produces low turnover in leaders, much better for leaders.
0: And again, the, I think that Andrew Boy, once said that the, constitu- the constitution mainly deals with how things should be done and not what things should be done. And this is why, again, the stability of the system you can do whatever you want but you can but do it in the proper way now if we go if we want to go over to you know the distinction between right and left the distinction between dem- democrat and liberal basically the same rules apply would you say okay but in a more democratic society in the American sense, things will be slightly different in a more Republican society. In a more Republican government, things will be a little bit different. Or it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. People or people or people, and the rules that you set out needs to be followed. No matter if you're Republican or Democrat.
1: Yes, I I I I think that that's right. I think the current what I would describe as a, a near constitutional crisis in the United States is exactly about that. It is that the rules, there was an attempt not to follow the rules uh, and the attempt so far has failed um, because it seems, I can go back here, once you're up in there, enough people value keeping the structure stable uh, that they push back against the effort to corrupt uh, the rules. Yeah, whether whether it's... uh, very peculiar electoral college version of presidential system that the United States has, or it's uh, first past the post-parliamentary system like Britain, or it's a proportional representation parliamentary system like Israel. Um, That that makes some difference. It affects the size of the the winning coalition, but not by huge amounts. Um, Much more important is how big is that key group and how big a pool is it drawn from? That explains much, much more of the differences across societies than knowing that it's parliamentary or it's presidential or it's monarch or whatever.
0: Many people think that you know that King John Eel is is very stupid because they say if I would have been the ruler of North Korea, I would sign you know contract with the United States and free my people, but according to, to his objective is very is very smart and he, and he, and I think this is a mere. The, I think one of the most important ideas that rulers, when they do something that you know seems stupid to you, it's just because you and they they you don't have the same objectives, and they follow their objectives in a very systematic way.
1: Nicely, we- that's that that is. Perfectly stated, that's exactly right.
0: Even in my Uh, Israeli accent.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Many, many people make the mistake of thinking that the, that what leaders are interested in is making their society better off. And while I'm pretty confident that no leader objects to their society being better off, if they have to choose between am I better off or are the rest of the people better off at my expense, they're going to choose making themselves better off. Uh, We certainly see this in North Korea. Kim Jong-un is uh, estimated to have inherited $4 billion from his father uh, in a country where per capita income is is around $1,000, maybe a little bit less than $1,000. People are, are, are miserable And he flies in Italian chefs and French chefs and, you know, whatever he wants. Um, And, you know, if we look at at China, um, Xi Jinping uh, is cutting back on what few freedoms there had been permitted in academia and so forth, uh, even though those are the important sources of entrepreneurship and innovation because they were, he perceived that they were jeopardizing his control. It's it's about staying in power.
0: Okay, you know many people in Israel would would say would say the same about our government, which we're going to election for the fifth time. <laughs> so it's not North Korea exactly, but again, <laughs> okay. Now there is again an much other... much bigger
1: coalition than North Korea, <laughs> well, well, but not yeah. big enough.
0: I think you know that the George Bush the father once said that running... Running a country is now is it's like running a cemetery. You have many people underneath you, but no one uh, listen to what you say. okay? So another important pillar of what you say is the concept of revolution and people who are not educated cannot revolve, cannot uh, be against the against the government. And this brings me to what, to the concept of informed democracy, democracy that you need enough educated people to run the revolution. And in many dictatorships, starving, uneducated, illiterate people just can't run a, can't run a protest, can run you know, the justification of the ideas of the protest. Would you can, can you please elaborate on the importance of educated citizens?
1: Yes, certainly. Uh, One of the mistakes that a lot of people, in in my experience at least, make is they look at a society um, like Cuba or North Korea, uh, and they say, well, good educational system, essentially 100% literacy. What they don't look at is, okay, what about past basic elementary education? What about basic addition, beyond basic addition and subtraction and, and literacy. Uh, how many people go to high school? How many people go to university? Uh, how good are the universities? So uh, from a, uh, a dictator's perspective, Just a second. it's important to have people who have enough education, Okay, enough education so they can read and follow instructions and do the work necessary to produce wealth for the leader. More education than that, education sufficient, for example, to begin to have original ideas or to question how things are being done. That's very unattractive because that creates rivalry. So a simple simple statistic. Uh, If we looked at the 200 top universities in the world, uh, with the exception of two in China, and one in singapore all the others are in democracies in 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 demo- so uh, china has uh, two
0: uh, switzerland has more a tiny can country you, but but again can you explain why china has two because you know it's yeah it, it it's it's a very it, it's a very exception you it, know it, it, it's a very big exception but again how come china has Two great universities that can, you know, produce people who potentially can revolve against government.
1: So there are several things that go on in China. Uh, And and of course, that is the risk. That's why there are only two. Uh, It's, of course, a huge population. Uh, And with a huge population, there are a lot of
0: elite families. The low uh, newcomers. You have me? Yeah, 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 it's like the laws of big numbers when you have like yeah, yeah. many, many So, so there, are a
1: lot of, there are a lot of elite families, uh, influential families, politically influential families. They, they want their children to have opportunities. Uh, many of them go abroad. For many years, that wasn't available. Um, and others go to uh, Chinese universities and then go abroad for graduate work. So they, they need some places to produce these elites. Uh, they also, we should note, uh, are the universities are very strong in, uh, in fields like mathematics, physics. Uh, they're not strong in fields like politics, science, economics, science. Yeah, um, where, where that's riskier. Uh, so there are very, very few exceptions. Singapore is, to me, the more interesting exception, because I believe Singapore is, uh, is evolving towards becoming a democracy and there are reasons why societies become democratic and that, that's a, within the theory there are. Um, S- Singapore has in the last few years joined the ranks of places that have highly thought of universities. They didn't before. Uh, and that, that's consistent with their movement in a positive uh, political uh, direction. Um, yeah, education, very dangerous thing. Healthcare too, by the way. Uh, a lot of people, again, they look at a place like Cuba and they think, oh, look, it's a great healthcare system. Uh, it's a great healthcare system for uh, workers. You, you, you don't want workers to do miserably, but places that have small coalitions, uh, small number of keys um, uh, tend to have uh, poor healthcare for infants, They have high infant mortality. Cuba is a place people point to low infant mortality, but it's higher today relative to the rest of the world than it was under Fulgencio Batista before Castro. People don't look at what it was like before. Not not that Fidel Castro was worse than Batista or better than Batista, simply that when you have that, we have dictatorship for that long, the quality erodes. So you want to have a few good hospitals to take care of the elites, or you want to be able to fly them to places where they can be taken care of but the, you know the people who aren't producing wealth for you are not important so you don't you don't
0: worry about them so i, I it is so true i want to quote something this is my first book about you know and and it's called wash Gadol in hebrew it's like think big and in this book i speak about you know the importance of learning and study and education and i quote from Himmler's diary in 1940, and he wanted to make the Poland, a, 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 you know, a nation of slaves. How you can enslave a big nation? So he said that the pure and simple objectives of the Polish schools is to teach them simple arithmetics, no computations above the number five hundred. <laughs> they will know to know how to write the name, and the doctrine that it's a divine law to obey the Germans. I don't think reading is a good thing for them. And again, this is how you make a, you know, a nation of of astronomers and philosophers, how you enslave them with education or with the lack of education. And And after all, in the, you know. Just a second, three. And I will say even another thing, you know, when God speaks about the promised land, about the Holy Land, he said that in this land, you will find bronze and iron. It doesn't say gold and diamond. Because again, if you dig gold and diamond out of the land, this like a very good recipe towards dictatorship. But if you dig bronze and iron, you need to count on the creativity and genius of the people, so this is part of why we don't have gold and diamond in Israel.
1: <laughs> well, I don't know if that's why you don't have gold and diamond. I, mean, I remember many years ago on a on a trip to Israel, uh, attending a conference where there was a discussion of the of the so called the resource curse, and an official from the Israeli government. Uh, might have been the prime minister, might have been Ehud Barak, I, I, I'm not sure, it was quite a while ago, uh, made the comment, ah, maybe we could have had a little bit of oil. <laughs> uh, the, and in fact, you do now. Uh, you know, what, one of the interesting things to observe, to go back to Muammar Gaddafi, uh, what were some of the mistakes he made? So he was running a petro state. Uh, he didn't need an educated population to generate wealth. Uh, he could he could import uh, petroleum engineers from uh, overseas companies, they could bring the oil out of the ground, and he could get rich. Over the final decade of his rule, he raised the education levels in Libya to be second in the region only to Israel. Big mistake. and. He began because he wanted to win favor from the West. He stopped torturing people. Big mistake. Big mistake. He was inviting
0: opposition and he got it. So again, so the idea of a benevolent dictator is oxymoron. If you are going to be a good dictator, someone will replace you. Eventually, and this is just the law of life, the law of nature. It has nothing to do with what your aspirations with the group of people, just mere logic. And this is brings me to the next topic that I want to discuss with you.
1: Before, before you leave, I, I yes. wanted to make one very small adjustment to what you just said, because what you said is correct. Up to a limit. The limit is that when you're a dictator lots of the government, lots of the society's revenue is money that you can decide how to spend. It's at your discretion. You've taken care of the coalition and the rest of the money, it's up to you. And dictators come in three flavors. Uh, They come in the flavor of, of kleptocrats, thieves, uh, who, you know, this, this is why secret bank accounts exist. So they have a place to stash the money. But they also come in the flavor of people who intend to be civic-minded. And among those who intend to be civic-minded, not, not with the money that is necessary to keep the coalition loyal, but with their personal money. Uh, they, 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 they may be civic-minded, and then they come in two varieties, dumb and smart. So, you know, they, they might have really bad ideas about how to use that money. Mao Zedong had very bad ideas about how to build the Chinese economy. Uh, Kwame Nkrumah had very bad ideas about how to build Ghana's economy. But they might have good ideas. Li Kuan Yew had good ideas. Deng Xiaoping had good ideas. But it's with the money that they could take. It's not with the money they need to keep them in power. That's the minor adjustment.
0: But again, if I want to know Charles Mary in the bell curve said that if you're like in heaven and you're Need to choose between going with the top uh, two standard deviation, you know, higher IQ or higher uh, socioeconomic status, go with a higher IQ. You said if you need to choose as a citizen, go with a democracy. You are far way better there than in a a dictatorship. Absolutely. Okay. Now we, I come from the uh, exact science. I, I'm trained in computer science, electrical engineering. And in in my discipline, a law always, always works. Always. Gravity always works. It's not okay, sometimes it doesn't, okay? But in the social science, you have aggregate laws. You no, know, on most part, you know, sometimes yes, sometimes no. And and many people in like the discipline of history could look at the exact same facts, the exact same documents, the exact same world data, and comes to very, very different opposite conclusions. Now you said in your many lectures that you can apply logic you know, the laws of logic that we use in physics and math to predict many, many things in the political science. And you give examples that I will cover like in Israel and Iran and, but, I think that this is too much to ask. This is an aggregate law. So what is, in your opinion, the distinction between the predictions that you do, that you make, you know, that count on, that that has a much bigger dimension of noise and uncertainty than my predictions that always, but always work.
1: So you started, in my opinion, with a slightly incorrect premise, um, which which is uh, that for some reason unknown, the laws of physics always work, which of course, by by the way, is not true. The laws that Isaac Newton identified, many were disproven by Einstein and some of what Einstein proved was disproven by Bohr. There's, There's progress always at the fringes, putting that aside. There's a very important difference between uh, w- what uh, physicists study and what social scientists study. Um, and it doesn't have to do with the precision of law, it has to do with the complexity of the problem. Uh, I, I have from time to time been invited to give talks to groups of physicists. I always start to talk the same way. Uh, the average physicist's IQ is unquestionably, and I will say the same for engineers, uh, the average uh, physicist's IQ is unquestionably higher than the average social scientist's IQ. And yet, I have never heard a physicist reach a generalization about a social phenomenon that sounded to me correct uh, and well thought out. Why? because physicists learn to study how particles interact. You just dropped a pen and indeed it fell and putting aside the uh, air air pressure and so forth, uh, so the friction, yeah, it fell roughly at 32 feet per second per second. Okay.
0: Ah, you still walk with the feet thing. Oh, I forgot, <laughs> I'm sorry. Ah. <laughs> But
1: if I were sitting in the room with you and I picked up the same pen and I tossed it at you, you would put your hands up to block it. Social phenomena are about how, for want of a better term, particles interact strategically. Physics is much simpler. It's about how particles interact. Two particles crash into each other, And there's a consequence, neither particle prepared for the crash. But in social phenomena, we prepare for the crash. And so behavior is strategically altered by the expectation of what is coming. So it's a much more complicated problem. So I wouldn't say that there aren't uh, laws. I would say we uh, have identified a few of them, but there are undoubtedly a lot out there we have not yet identified. Prediction. We have apparently identified enough that um, I constructed uh, a a game theoretic model for for any number, any finite number of players uh, that I apply to real world problems in uh, advance um, to predict what will happen and sometimes to uh, engineer what will happen, that is, If you can predict accurately, then it should be the case that if you can change some of the pathway or some of the inputs, you can change the outcome. Uh, The track record of the models I've developed uh, is well over 90% accuracy, according to other independent audits, not my opinion, independent audits of the work. This is not because I have some great insight or Whatever. Psychic insight. It's, it's, it's because it's not that hard a problem. Uh, people do what they believe is in their best interest. So if you pin down precisely what the problem is that you're studying, and you identify who are the parties interested in trying to influence it, and you just need to know four pieces of information about each of those parties, What do they claim they want? Not what's in their heart of hearts, because you can't know that. But what what are they currently asking for? What are they bargaining for? How high a priority is this problem for them compared to other problems they have to deal with? How resolved or flexible are they about the position they have adopted on it? Are they open to listening to other arguments or not? and how much influence could they exert if they try as hard as they can, but it's not necessarily their highest priority. And even if it is, they have other things. If you know those four things numerically about enough people, you can write down a model that is correct an overwhelming percentage of the time uh, because people behave in a manner that is consistent with trying to do what's good for them. Different people want different things. So that's why we need to know what they're arguing for uh, because it's, it's not some uh, external notion of this is what you should want, but rather, okay, this is what you do want. I teach a course called Solving Foreign Crises. It's an upper level undergraduate course. Uh, each student comes to that class. They, they pick any problem in the world that interests them and, this, and that's what they do, they model it. Uh, and they make predictions, some of them, uh, and, and then they do uh, what's called comparative static analysis. What if I change this, what if I change that? Not the structure of the situation, but what if I ask for more than I want? What if I ask for less than I want? What if I pretend to care less than I care? It's hard to pretend to care more because it's costly. And what if I'm more uh, rigid? What if I'm more flexible? And, it, and, and they solve the problem. Uh, there are only two important political problems in the world where I discourage them from doing it. I let them do it if they want to, but I discourage them. Uh, one is uh, the Israeli-Palestinian dispute and the other is Kashmir. And I discourage them for the same reason. So I pose to any student who says they want to do it, I pose a, a simple thought experiment. To change the outcome without a war, you need to be able to at least imagine a change from the status quo that would be better for the Israeli leadership and better for the Palestinian leadership. Tell me what that outcome looks like because I just don't have that much imagination. I cannot imagine such an outcome. So, well, peace and stability. I yes, peace and stability will be good for the Palestinian people. It will be good for many Israelis, but the government won't get reelected on that because the benefits will be realized well down the road and, and the political sacrifices will be realized right away. So it's unlikely that's why I emphasize the political leadership, not the people. Uh, the same problem with Kashmir. What could the Pakistanis put on the table that would improve the status from the status quo for India? You know they don't have enough leverage, just as the Palestinians don't have enough uh, leverage, enough friends uh, to make the difference. So. I say that these two problems, I think you can do them. You will be very okay, disappointed. Okay, okay. So
0: just a second, just hold on. OK. OK. One, uh, let me just strengthen your point about physics, because you're extremely right about physics. One, physics restricts itself to you know the interaction between two particles. This is why it can demand and produce levels of accuracy unachievable by any other standard chemistry, you know, the basic building block is the mo- is the molecule. Therefore, chemistry is much less accurate. In biology, the most profoundly uh, building block is the cell. Therefore, biology is much less uh, predictable than chemistry and physics. And psychology, this is the man, which is much way complex. And In political science, in economy, it's not just one man, it's a group of men. So, wow, this is way too much complex. The the level of complexity in solving economical problems, in solving political science problems is much more complex than physics. Totally uh, 100% with you on this. But when you say, okay, there are only four things that you need, you know, to what what he says he, he wants and how much can he be influenced and people want the best interest. Now, after, I don't know, you know, the study of Danny Kahneman and many others, people usually want their best interest, usually, okay? And people usually, and usually, 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 but you say, no, if I can manipulate those things, I can understand. Now there is a very important distinction in political science between understand and explain. I think Delta made it. You know, sometimes I understand in the physical world, but sometimes I just explain, and I can't rewind the the circles of history and say, okay, what would have been, what would have happened if I changed? Because you cannot rewind history. So. My question is, you said, okay, my model works 90% of the time, which is great. This is a phenomenal, but just take Hamas, you know, the rise of Hamas in 2012. I think, you know, the Israeli intelligence didn't see it, didn't foresee it coming. And you said that you did in 1990.
1: I did in in a published paper in in 1990.
0: So, yes. So what, maybe you just had a fluke. Or maybe, like you said, the Israeli intelligence puts too much emphasis on their opinions and their willing and their aspirations. And I don't give a shit about this because i strict with the model and I keep my opinions aside.
1: I completely agree. I can't prepare it, Bruce. Uh, I, I, you know, first, the first two weeks of solving foreign crises is teaching the students to strip out of their thinking, their opinion, their, their preferences, and so forth. The problem is to identify what the interests are of the parties in the game, not their interests. Uh, it's not about opinion. It's about analysis. I'd also want to make a, an adjustment to something that you said in passing uh, with regard to uh, prospect theory, Kahneman and Tversky. Um, I know Danny Kahneman pretty well. I like him a lot. Uh, he and I both have known each other for 40 years. We both got honorary degrees on the same occasion at the University of Haifa. Uh, and Amos Tversky, uh, when I was, when I lived at Stanford, his house was right behind mine. We walked to work together often and argued together often. Prospect theory uh, is not a theory of strategic interaction. It's a a simple decision-theoretic problem uh, that they're solving. Um, So it is not an appropriate tool for dealing, for example, with foreign crises. Who says that? Danny Kahneman says that uh, in 2001. He's very clear that prospect theory, which is a rational choice theory that gives us a different shape of utility function, um, is about how simple decisions are made, not about how strategic calculations are made where you are competing with other people. And he he has looked into trying to do that, has concluded it cannot be done because they don't have a sufficient theory of framing to determine what the setting will be that structures uh, where the interactions will occur. Um, this is an issue I had raised with Tversky decades ago. And putting that aside, um, yes, uh, politics is, 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 is involves a lot of variables, a lot of factors. I've boiled it down in prediction to four, four variables interacting with each other in complex nonlinear ways is is not a small problem. Could I throw in more variables? Of course, but I have a theory, and the theory dictates that I need to estimate these four variables to get highly accurate answers. History, something that you mentioned. I I, I, I say to my students something very obnoxious. I'm going to put this in a context. As you mentioned at the outset, I recently wrote a book invention of power. It's about decisions in the 12th century. I care deeply about history. I read a lot of history. I write about history. History is not particularly informative or important in solving, for example, foreign policy problems. Why not? So I'm going to use a simple analogy. If you play chess, do you play chess?
0: I just started.
1: Okay, excellent, so, excellent, it's a wonderful game.
0: This if, you, an opening.
1: If, you, if you walk in on two people playing chess, you're not playing, and you, they've, been, they've, they've made several moves, you look at the board and it's Black's move. The thing that you are likely to be thinking about is what is the best move for Black to make? So you might think about, well, if they do this, White will do that, if they do that, White will do something else, what's likely to work out best? You don't think about how did, the, how did the board get to this position? That is, what was the history that got it here? Because solving the game from that point cannot be solved, you cannot go back and undo what's been done. So the question that you are posing in your mind is from this point forward, what are the optimal moves to make
0: just a second this is a great idea just a second this is like just hold on this is a great idea just just a second this is a very it's it's a brilliant idea but now do it slowly okay i can't go backwards but there is no data no importance in what have been in the past even in the context of chess Uh -uh.
1: No, I didn't, I didn't say that. I said something very much okay. more careful than that. Go so slowly. Me, go me,
0: slowly. Go slowly because yes. it's a very important idea. So history
1: will have shaped what each of the players in a strategic problem, what they want, how much they care about it, how, how high a priority it is. It may have shaped their position that makes them more or less influential. It may have shaped all of the variables I care about other things may have shaped those things also. My concern in thinking forward to how the problem gets solved is what are the values of those variables, not what gave them their values, because it turns out knowing what gave them their values, at least in the analysis that I do, in the modeling that I do, doesn't alter the answer. If you know the values, you get an accurate answer.
0: Because you account on the Markov assumption that giving the present, the past, and the future are independent. But this is only an assumption. I teach also the Markov assumption, and I, te- and I teach my students, guys, this is only an assumption. I'm a religious person. I say, I hope in God that the Markov assumption stays correct, but I don't know whether the Markov assumption is correct. Giving the present, the past, and the future are independent. But this ah. is only an assumption. You assume <laughs> this.
1: Yes, uh, I assume a lot of things, but how do I determine what is the method or the mechanism that we use to determine whether the assumption is useful? The mechanism is how well does it account for what happens? So since there's a theory that is about causal Motivators of behavior, it is providing an explanation and it is providing a prediction. It is true that you can predict without explanation, but if you and it and having an explanation doesn't guarantee prediction. But it's really helpful to have an explanation to get prediction. So we make assumptions. I make, you know, I assume the people are rational. I assume they're self-interested. Uh, I, I assume that whatever the values are doesn't is what matters. It doesn't matter how they got there. It's all correct. The test of whether the assumptions are sufficient is two things, how well does it explain what we're trying to explain? And is there some alternative theory that we have that explains it better? So if the answer is it does well what we're interested in and there's not an alternative that does better, then maybe in the future there will be, but at the moment, it's the best we can do.
0: Just a second, Bruce, you said you started from history is not so important in what I do, although I love and I write and read about history and you gave the chest example. But what if in the context of the chest, I see the board and I open an history book okay, and say, wow, it used to be the same position once upon a time. And then and then this guy did this and this and this. So. You, you can learn from history if you say, okay, basically we face the same situation. Could you please elaborate? Because I, I think yeah. it's tremendously important.
1: I, I'm not saying you can't learn from history. The values, for example, of the variables may come from history. Uh, and of course, if you're a serious chess player, you have studied classic games. So you, you look at a board and you read, ah, this is that situation. But the response is based on not that's what people did before, but this is in part because I'm informed I'm Bayesian by what people did before. Here's what worked. Here's what didn't. This is what I believe is the best response given this board structure. That may be a consequence of your knowledge of history. It may be a consequence of your being more or less oriented towards taking risks it may be a consequence of a lot of other things. So I'm not saying that history is not important. I'm saying it's not the only thing and it's not a determinate thing. If we know the values of the critical variables, we can move forward from those variables in a dynamic model to anticipate what will happen, whether the values came as a consequence of the history of the individuals or something else. Uh, is is not as important as knowing what the key variables are what the values are on them and then a dynamic model of how what are the optimal things to do from that point forward
0: but, so but it li- it's like kant Laplace theorem that if if we would have known you know the uh, the uh, the position and velocity of all the particles in the universe we could predict from now up to up to eternity but you somehow dismiss or ignore the idea of noise of inherent noise in no, no. the system because if i can you know this is a dynamic model and i put you know my equations or my variables in the in, in 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 the model in the equation and i run the model but how could you put you know the inherent uncertainties inherent noise inherent biases in your model. So in fact, I have, uh,
1: but you are ignoring something very important, uh, which is the track record. So what is the way that we have to evaluate whether the, the bundle of assumptions and the bundle of equations uh, are providing us with a useful way to anticipate the future?
0: I stated two, two, with two criteria. Reality. You can check yeah, how, well does it
1: how well does it fit reality? And do we have something else that fits better? So there may be lots of noise out there. There's not that much noise because, as I said, my accuracy rate is over 90%. So the noise is a pretty small fraction of the total. Um, so that already says we've got something that's helpful. Uh, and then uh, we want to think about what... What sources of noise uh, sh- might, might disrupt expectations? So uh, my, my software, uh, bundle of equations, I've written software for it. Uh, my software allows me to randomly shock any or all of the variables. I can, in the software, I can set a probability for any of the variables or all of the variables that they will be randomly altered. And I can can set a range within which that shock occurs. That is trying to get at the idea that there's measurement error. There are other sources of error. We wanna know how robust is the prediction. So then we can run a thousand simulations starting with the original data and randomly shocking. uh, And we get a distribution around uh, the prediction, the original prediction, and we can compute equivalent of a confidence interval around that. And so we can talk about, well, this prediction we're really confident in. The, the, all these random shocks have made very little difference. This prediction we're much more uncertain about. The random shocks have produced a wide range of outcomes with high probability um i did it's that. Like a, it's it.
0: like it's like a chaos theory when you know slightly changes if slightly changes slightly slight changes in the you know in the in the starting point produce big changes you say this is not such a a, a good prediction but if slight changes produce produce in, in the outset produce slight changes in the prediction you say, okay, this is a stable prediction, so it, it is more likely to be the to be the truth. Yeah. You,
1: yes? you create you create a again be a little technical. You create a density function around the initial prediction. Uh, how big an earthquake does it take to say, well, I don't trust this prediction? If it doesn't take much of an earthquake, you'd be pretty confident in it. Uh, I did a a paper, um, it's a long time ago, uh, at the suggestion of the historian John Gaddis, uh, taking a much earlier version of my uh, forecasting model, much more primitive model than what I have today. Uh, And he said, I should take data that anybody could have known in 1947 and use these random shocks to see how often the model would predict the outcome of the Cold War. So I did a paper on this. Seventy-eight uh, percent of the simulations, uh, the United States peacefully won the Cold War. Eleven percent, they just they kept going at least past the, the time I ran. I ran it out for about seventy-five years, and then the other eleven percent of the time, the Soviets won, often with a war. Uh, so what it was saying is there the 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 seed in 1947 was sufficiently strong that with high probability, but far from certainty, that the Cold War would emerge as, as, a, as a success for the West. Uh, and in, in those models, they always predicted the formation of NATO and the formation of the Warsaw Pact or something that looked a lot like them and so on. But the model was completely uninformed about anything that happened in the world after 1947, just randomly perturbed. Just a
0: second, it, 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 it's mind-blowing because, hey, can I play with the model just like a, a business secrets of yours? Of, yeah, we can,
1: we can play with the model. The model is- No,
0: can I, or, or did you like publish the model or some of it so people can you know play? Or this, this is like a, 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 a top business secret? Uh,
1: So so the answer is both of those. Uh, I have published 90 some odd percent of the model. There are some elements that are business secrets because I have a consulting business, Uh, but for academic use in classroom or for publication, uh, the model is for professors available for free online uh, and for students, uh, if it's in a course, it's $60 for a year license. They can run as many analysis oh, This is again, you
0: How your model can predict the formation of NATO? What's the output of your model? Like, okay, so it's going to be a NATO. It, 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 as an AI engineer, as an AI uh, professor, I, I don't know, I, I'm extremely interested. It, it's not a GPT-3. It's not a, you just produce, you inject numbers and the model produced number. So how yes, does so, number right. translated into the formation of NATO?
1: So the model is showing uh, using some uh, network analysis. Uh, it's it's showing what coalitions of players are forming. Ah. Position, uh, exactly. Ah, and so, okay. And, and so what you're seeing is a bundling of uh, states. Uh, I think in every NATO, every model, every simulation there was, you know, it wasn't perfectly NATO, there were slight variations. Belgium, for some reason, often was not in. But pretty much everybody else, there they were. Uh, and the Warsaw Pact, almost perfect. Uh, so what, what's happening is the, the players are, again, it's dynamic. So their positions are shifting through time, and those shifting positions are creating new coalitions. And you see those coalitions and those coalitions look like NATO and the Warsaw Pact.
0: It's like John Conway, the game of life, just with real world implications. So now we had Nate Silver uh, publishing the signal and the noise in 2012, I think. And does your model can predict uh, if Trump will win in 2024? Or does your model can predict the price of Bitcoin in 2040, and can does your model can predict you know the S&P figure, S&P 500 in six months? So how or you just restrict yourself to coalition between parties who can who have interest and say what they want, and Bitcoin doesn't say what it wants.
1: So uh, I've known Nate Silver since he was an infant. Um, <laughs> Uh, literally since since the day he was born. His, his father is a political science professor. He's a colleague of mine, Brian Silver. Uh, so I leave elections in democracies to Nate. Uh, I, could my model predict out, uh, outcomes of democratic elections? Uh, the answer is yes, but I don't, I, as a matter of policy, don't use it to predict democratic elections. I have used it to try to help to shape outcomes in non-democratic elections, um, but uh, in my consulting life, but not democratic elections. Uh, why? Uh, my consulting partner and I both believe that, this, that the power of this model is quite substantial uh, and that it would instruct us on how to manipulate key variables with high probability to shift an outcome. Don't feel that that's appropriate in a democracy. That reduces the winning coalition to a very small set. It's a very dangerous thing. So, as a matter of policy, I don't do that.
0: But many people but say, just a second, Booth, that you know that the AI industry and Facebook and YouTube and Google are basically doing it, you know, on yes. purpose or purposely. But, but you know, uh, many yes, people know. are afraid that the big tech you know, can steer people towards one objective or another in this very manner. Now, your system is not AI in a way that it is explainable. You can explain the models, you can explain the assumption, you can explain everything. It's not just like a black box AI.
1: Correct, correct. Um, I am well aware that there are many people uh, at many big firms that are, engaged in trying to influence these sorts of things. I personally feel it's not, for me, an appropriate thing to do. Uh, Bitcoin, the S&P. So those are more complicated questions. Let Let me preface my answer with exactly what my model, my forecasting model, is designed to do. It is designed to predict outcomes in situations where, there could be a negotiated settlement of a problem, and there could be the use of coercion. So therefore, it is not an appropriate tool for markets. Of course, sometimes, and this is particularly true for Bitcoin um, or cryptocurrency in general, sometimes markets are driven by political events that involve the possibility of coercion and the possibility of negotiation. Those outcomes, those effects on markets, are predictable, uh, and I I have from time to time done that, um, either for clients or for my own personal investment
0: purposes. What do you think what are you saying? Give us something. You <laughs> say that in two thousand and thirty. Okay, I will ask you just one question. Okay, and you can answer or not. Do you? Think that in 2030, seven years from now, eight years, eight years from now, we still use Bitcoin uh, as, a trans- as, a, as a currency in the world?
1: So I'm going to answer your question with absolutely no expertise or knowledge on it. I'm very, very, very careful to note to people, I have no wisdom. I don't make predictions. I have a model that predicts. If I don't feed data into the model and I don't solve the equations, I have no no better insight. Oh, so don't I, I
0: I want the model answer. You said I, I have I, I don't care about my opinion. I care what the yes, model that. thinks.
1: I have not modeled the question. But ah. if you wanted to engage my company, we would be happy to model it for you.
0: <laughs> okay, so no, no, okay. So there is one thing that you must answer me. Okay what about israel okay you must answer it because you're jewish i'm jewish i'm part of israel and israel is a very big conflict okay now we have the inner politics in israel but it's much less interesting than the outer politics you know palestine you know the uh, you know we have peace with the Emirates now what do you think and you have you must have put some of what israel is now doing into your model because you wrote the 1990 paper about israel where you predicted the rise of hamas yes. what do you think or again what's your model thing and
1: and in that paper also the emergence of the semi-autonomous palestinian authority
0: That's so but means. but but this was in 1990 now we are 2022 yes. and i i bet that you put again during those 32 years the data into the model, okay? So have you, what, what your model thinks about Israel and, the, and its near future and maybe far away future?
1: So over the past uh, several years, oh, there's history, um, the size of Israel's winning coalition, the keys, has been shrinking. Uh, it has declined, if we go back, say, to 1990, uh, the winning coalition at the, at the end of the 20th century uh, was about 0.91 on a zero to one scale. Today, it's about 0.82. Uh, it's gone, maybe it's 83. It's gone down substantially. It's a very important decline. This cut point is generally up around 0.94, 0.95. So Israel is at risk. Uh, It is below that dividing line. And it it has been moving the the wrong way uh, from from my perspective. It's been moving in a less democratic way. Uh, I fear that that could continue. And and there are solutions to that. But they involve, and Israel has has experimented with some of the solutions in the past, uh, and because it didn't like, that is, the people in power didn't like the outcome, for example, separating the election of the president from the election, uh, or the prime minister from the election of the Knesset. um, That has... That had potential features to make the prime minister's winning coalition quite a little bit larger. The, the the winning coalition in the Knesset can be very very small because you have ex- extreme proportional representation. Uh, Tell structure.
0: me about it. our current prime minister. Has like he had he had seven seats in in the parliament. Now we have three. So yes,
1: yes, yeah, yeah. No, this this is. These are the consequences of bad structure. Um, People think that proportional representation gives representation to many more points of view. That's a very superficial understanding of proportional representation. Why do I say that? So yes, it's true that who's in the Knesset is representing a very diverse array of interests. And when it comes time to pass a law, it takes a majority of the Knesset in a structure where it's all bargained away because there isn't a natural majority because the the system gave representation to fringe groups at the outset, but then they have to congeal into a into fifty plus one percent. Um, so this makes it a system that invites corruption, uh, invites selling policy in exchange for favors um, and could be corrected by-
0: Regional system.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, but there are many, many ways to fix it. Um, if for example, uh, there were a um, uh, regional elections, uh, you're too small really for regional elections, it sort of in the German design, uh, that proportional also, you know, many ways the, the German and the Israeli proportional representation systems are very similar, except that they're voting at the lender level, uh, not nationally. Uh, that produces a bigger coalition. So I mean, there are a lot of things that could be done. But I, I'm concerned that uh, for both policy reasons uh, and structural reasons, uh, Israel is on a potentially dangerous path with regard to democracy. Uh, let's be frank here. Uh, the, I haven't looked lately, but for many decades, it was true that the birth rate among uh, Arab citizens of Israel was higher than the birth rate among Jewish citizens of Israel. And for some elements in the political atmosphere in Israel, uh, that's seen as a dangerous trend uh, because if the country remains democratic, natural
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah, yes. development.
1: Yeah. So, uh, so I'm, I'm concerned about Israel. Uh, and I would like to say Israel will self-correct. I would like to believe that. Um, I'm confronted with the problem that Israel is not above the cut point. And political leaders generally like to self-correct in the wrong way. Direction. So it will take activism by the people to self-correct. I have not modeled whether that activism will be there, so I, I can't speak to that
0: at but this activism point. can be a movement, a people movement towards changing the election policy?
1: Yes. Yes. Yes
0: okay now you, know what? you started with the inner politics and i would like to ask you about the outer politics Our, yeah. you know the peace process whether whether exists with the palestine but you know we have like peace with a uh, a uh, right now my friend dan shiftan which is a great political scientist in israel said that in the israeli palestinian conflict there are no solutions and solutions can be only found in jigsaw puzzles we only have trade-offs. So, what's what's your take, or be more precisely, what's your model take on the world politics or alter politics about with Israel and the Arabs? So,
1: um, I no longer see the Palestinian issue as the central political issue in foreign affairs for Israel.
0: And, God.
1: Uh, and I have for many years, and I'm happy to say it's now working out, uh, I have for many years uh, in my uh, consulting life, or this is a question that comes up, uh, I have been predicting uh, that uh, what is going to emerge in the region is a strong alignment between Saudi Arabia and Israel, meaning as well, Saudi's friends, and this is already clearly happening, uh, that for Israel and for the Saudis, Iran is a much bigger concern than the Palestinians. I mean, the problem that the Palestinians have is they have no friends. Uh, they they have people, you know, well-intentioned people around the world who feel that they are being badly treated, and indeed they have been badly treated, um, but, uh, I don't. I. I don't see it as a problem without a solution. I see it as a problem that has been solved. Israel has, so to speak. Again, I say this as a positivist, not a normative statement. Israel has won that battle. They lost the propaganda war, but Israel won the battle on the ground. Uh, the the. All the Palestinians can do all. Hamas can do, all Islamic Jihad can do, all that Hezbollah can do is occasionally poke somebody in the eye and be an irritant and then get punched in the nose and educated to... Again and again and again and again. Yeah. But they can't do anything substantial. They can't fundamentally alter the political structure. They can't fundamentally alter the borders. They don't have enough... Iran can, can, but doesn't have an interest in doing so.
0: This is a big issue. You said that according to what you know and your model, Iran is uninterested in developing a bomb to destroy Israel. Rather, it has like, you know, this inner politics, etc., etc. And you, uh, uh, I think that you... This was, you know, your TED talk, like in yes. ten, 2009. 2009. 2000. So February you said 2009. That although all the things that we hear uh, morning and evening from Iran, Iran is not a genuine threat on Israel in the context of atomic bomb.
1: Okay, so let's be very careful here. 2009. Well, on our side, Bruce.
0: Let, I understand.
1: Remind you. I understand. I, I, I'm on the side of. Truth and analysis.
0: Yes, but you want Israel to to stay exist.
1: Yes. In in 2009, uh, the indications were that at least for the subsequent five to ten years, Iran was not going to build a bomb. And they didn't. Okay, I said that publicly in 2009. The economist said I was the only person apparently who didn't know that they would have a bomb in six to nine months. And here we are, 13 years later, there's no bomb. That same statement today, I would not make it with the confidence that I made it in 2009. Why? Because the United States reneged on the agreement and the analytic implication of reneging is from an Iranian perspective, and then I want to go into the domestic Iranian politics because they are critical, from from a foreign policy perspective, the Iranian leadership has no reason to take as a credible commitment anything that the United States government agrees to because we reneged. A treaty would be a different matter, so I could if there could be a treaty on the nuclear program, then that would, that would have some sticking power. The difficulty is, and I, so I pose to you, a question I pose to my students on this question. What is, the, what is it that the United States is prepared to give Iran change for Iran appearance to the 2015 agreement. The United States reneged. Lifting sanctions doesn't really speak to the problem. Of course, they would like that, but the sanctions could be slapped right back on a week later for reasons, it was slapped on by Donald Trump for reasons having nothing to do with the nuclear agreement. So what is it that the United States, that the Joseph Biden could credibly offer to the Iranian leadership that would get the Iranian leadership to resume enforcement and would be politically beneficial for Joe Biden i i cannot imagine what yeah, that it's a very looks
0: hard like. question to answer
1: yes indeed so therefore if i if i were the Iranian leadership today i would be thinking about building a nuclear weapon not to attack israel this i think is I understand the concern, but I think it's a mistaken concern. The purpose of a nuclear capability is not to take on Israel. It is to deter Israel and to deter the United States from overthrowing the Iranian regime.
0: Oh, okay, so let me just ask you the same question differently. If you were consulting to the Israeli prime minister, and, his, and you say, okay, and the so Israeli prime minister says, listen, we know that Iran is heading towards producing or developing a weapon. Do you think we should attack, like, according to foreign uh, newspaper, we kill all their engineers? Do you think that we need to halt, delay, postpone their progress? Or do you think that we need to let them do it Because again, they don't want to throw it on us. Now, let me just remind you one thing. In probability theory, we have two things. One is a prior or is the probability that something will happen. And two is, like Daniel Bernoulli says, the utility function. How do we evaluate the loss or the price if something, even with a very small probability, happens? So, what would you advise? An Israeli Prime Minister?
1: So you raise a very important question, Thank you. Uh, which, which should be very carefully analyzed. My first response would be domestically at Iran. And what do I see? And by the way, the foreign policy community, from the time that they claimed Iran was building a nuclear weapon in the early 2000s, to the present, thinks it's strictly a foreign policy question. And this is wrong. The dominant question, in my view, and in my analysis view, for the Iranian leadership is domestic. What do I mean? There are very powerful domestic interests in Iran that don't want the headache of a nuclear weapons program. The bunyads. The bunyads control approximately 25 percent of the economy. They were created under the Shah. They persist under the theocracy. They are exempt from uh, taxes and they are exempt from being charged with corruption. They manage the this money of great. the ayatollahs. <laughs> this is great thing. They manage the money of the ayatollahs and of the uh, Revolutionary Guard. Okay. Uh, for them, and of course, they, they get a piece of the action. Their welfare depends on a good economy. And the nuclear program Is it makes, it hard, makes it hard to have a good economy. The petroleum industry has the same concerns. The local, the, the bazaaris, the local merchants, the bankers also, have the same concerns. These are powerful political influences in Iran. Uh, The kum clerics also have, uh, the so-called quietists have similar concerns. So the, the result in 2009 and the results in the analyses I've done along the way since then always point to the same thing. There are significant very powerful figures in the Iran hierarchy who would like to develop, who think it would be prudent to develop a nuclear capability. But every time they move significantly, try to move significantly in that direction, they get enormous political pushback at home. What did the sanctions regime of the West do? The sanctions regime rallied these interest groups around their government made the opposition less, yes, strong. less strong, less strident. So in that sense, I would want to analyze this. I wouldn't want to advise a government on such a serious matter just from the logic. I want to analyze. But to me, the message is, yes, if you step back, let the domestic interests exert their efforts against the regime, you're less likely to see a nuclear weapon than if outside pressure is applied that then weakens the opposition by having them rally around the Iranian flag. That's what happened. It delayed, in the analysis I did in 2009, what, what that showed is it delayed the sanction regime. Would The prediction was it would delay
0: Iran coming to the table by two years. So, Well, this is a hard question, again, because I think the same domestic pressures in Iran are, you know, heading towards peace with Israel, you know. We can go uh, uh, into Iran, we can have like Iranian tourism, and we have many Jewish-Iranians who would like to visit there, but it seems, I can't right now with you, because it seems that they don't apply logic, or, you know, they don't want to maximize the economic value. For them, it's yeah, yeah. So, it's, uh, so let's go the,
1: back to what yes. you yourself said earlier. Yes. Correctly, what is Khomeini concerned about? He's not concerned about economic productivity. He's not concerned about all that. He's concerned about Khamenei. What's what's good for him? He's still in power. Khomeini died on June sixth, nineteen eighty nine. So thirty three years ago. Khamenei has been in power for 33. It's been working really well for him. Yes. Well, and, you know, if, if, if we look across the board, we see that the, the actions that have been taken have been taken for the benefit of those at the top and their inner circle. The difficulty for the Iranians is while it's a petrol economy. It's a more diverse petrol economy than, uh, you know, than many. Um, And the petroleum industry is hurt by sanctions. The petroleum industry, the interest is have civilian nuclear energy. They have have energy shortages because, of course, they export as much of the oil as they can. So. um, The. The. Leadership has done what's good for the leadership. If the people rise up effectively, what's good for the leadership will be to accommodate the people. So they tried uh, with the seemingly rigged Ahmadinejad re-election a number of years ago. Uh, And uh, Khamenei's son was designated as the head of the Basij and they went out and bashed heads. Bashing heads is costly business. So if you have enough people taking to the streets, that stops working. It is sad to say, you know, part of what my analysis indicates is that uh, extra-legal killing and uh, torture are effective at keeping petty dictators in power.
0: Maybe he um, reads the dictator's handbook.
1: They don't need to read it. They, are, they, they intuitively <laughs> understand. <laughs> But as
0: it happens, they have been interested in translating it into, into <laughs> parts. Uh, Bus, do you understand that your beautiful logic concerning regarding Iran and Israel sounds better to an American ear than to an Israeli ear? Can you oh, understand? I'm, of course, I understand that. The the
1: I'm but you know I'm. Let me say something brutally frank. Um, terribly concerned with whether it sounds good to the listener because I am not in the business of persuading people that I am right. Uh, What I am hoping the business I'm in is is doing science Uh, and what I urge people to do, of course, for those who have the capability, I urge them to read the mathematics behind the theory, but for those who don't read math, I urge them to read uh, the, the, the verbiage and evaluate for themselves where they think it's wrong and go out and see whether the evidence supports their beliefs.
0: So let me uh-huh. phrase it differently. What you, your beautiful logic sounds better to the American government than to the Israeli government. And again, this is due to the utility function. <laughs> then, although what you say is absolutely correct, you know, the probability... And everything is great. But the tiny, tiny, tiny fraction probability that it could lead to an atomic bomb or an atomic weapon on Israel or attacked in Israel has tremendous implications on Israel, much more than the U.S.
1: Missing a very important element in the the logic that I applied. Uh, The probability of a nuclear attack if Israel does nothing is lower, the expected utility is l- therefore lower than if Israel takes action. That was the claim. The claim was that the domestic audience is m- in Iran is more likely to subdue its government than the Israelis are. Uh, and so, you're, so the, the, the comparison always has to be if I do X, What's the okay okay i got you i got
0: you and if i do why i got you because by because the
1: way without being specific uh, i will simply observe that i have uh, in the past on occasion had the uh, pleasure of advising your
0: government yeah, yeah, your yeah. Government. It, it seems so, that you are well informed with our uh, with our system now, wow, listen, you just blew my mind. It was one of the most interesting and inspiring conversations I've ever had in this channel. So first, thank you so much. Let me just conclude with what Ben Guyon said, that in Israel, in order to be rationalist, you must believe in miracles. So I hope that miracles will serve us uh, this time also. Bruce, thank you so much. We hadn't, uh, we, did, we didn't have the chance to speak of your latest books, the invention of powers and the the invention of power, and I will be delighted to uh, bring you back. Thank you so a, much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. One hell of a conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye. Okay. This was Bruce Bueno de Mosquita. Thank you so much. And again. If you have been with me so far, so I must tell you, we have a community. We have a YouTube community. You can join us on the Telegram channel. We can You, you can uh, join us on the YouTube channel. You can invite me to give speeches and talks through all around the world. If you want, please just email me, and you have my email in the description in the YouTube uh, video, guys. Thank you. I will meet you in the next talk. ا تا غيونوت השיחות السيחות הדבר השני, אם אתם רוצים לקחת חלק בקהילה שלנו ולפגוש ולדבר עם אנשים כמוכם, אתם מוזמנים לערוץ הטלגרם שלנו, שוב לכם מאוד. פשוט יראו עוד אנשים שמתעניינים בדברים מגניבים בדיוק כמוכם. והדבר האחרון, אם אתם יכולים, דרגו את הערוץ שלנו באפליקציית הפודקאסטים שלכם, זה יכול להיות בسبוטייפיי, באפל פודקאסט או בגוגל פודקאסט, זה תאריך קצר של שתי שניות ומאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפיץ את הבשורה הלאה. Sche ge k kef גד vê